Welcome to the tech.eu podcast with myself, Neil Murray, and Roxanne Vaza. Hi, Roxanne. Hi, Neil. So this week we will cover Europe's secret unicorn. That's TeamViewer from Germany. Uh, we have a Spanish startup, Cabify, that has raised $120 million to compete with Uber in Latin America and Europe. Uh, we have a new community-driven seed fund that is born called Back to VC, so we'll cover that as well. Neil had a chance to catch up with Vasco Pedro, who is the founder and CEO of Unbabble, and they'll discuss tech in Lisbon. And finally, Neil and I will wrap it up with kind of a what-the-fuck moment on a discussion on how Dow Jones underreported Q1 funding data for Europe. So I'm really excited about the, the last part especially. But let's jump right into it. So getting started with Europe's secret unicorn, I guess they're not so secret anymore. So that's TeamViewer. I had never heard of these guys. So all of this completely came out of the blue for me. Essentially a German-based company. They were apparently acquired almost two years ago for an undisclosed amount at the time. Apparently, it has recently surfaced that the amount was 870 million euros, which is close to 1 billion US current exchange rates. So the company founded in 2005 and with over 600 employees worldwide develops remote access, remote control and online meeting software. They have over a billion installations and apparently 27 million connections at any given time. So this is very, very impressive numbers. And they plan to continue their development, especially in the IoT space. I guess they consider themselves more of a competitor to the likes of Log Me In. They're not really competing as much in the Dropbox or the Box space. They also have some huge giants that they're competing with, like Microsoft Link, uh, Citrix GoToMeeting, or Cisco's WebEx. 50% of the company's customer base is in Europe, and the rest is abroad. They're currently seeing the most growth in the Americas, so U.S. is their biggest region in terms of revenue, with Asia-Pacific following behind. So this strikes me just as so weird that this company flew under the radar for so long. I guess even when the acquisition hit a few years ago, the Wall Street Journal only reported the deal in German. So I guess it also points to just how important English communication can be for these companies, although I guess it really hasn't impacted the business. But Neil, like, had you even heard of these guys? Well, I hadn't, but someone actually, I won't name them, in, you know, in case they, they didn't want to be named as a private conversation, but someone alerted me to them at probably at the beginning of this year or at the end of last year. And they just said, you know, why are they, are they never included in the unicorn? You know, when you say Europe's unicorn, why are they never in it? And I was like, you know, what are you talking about? And then they linked me to an article which was in German. It was one of the local German blogs. Uh, and actually it said the price was undisclosed, but that it is rumored to be in the region of $1.1 billion, which would obviously make it unicorn. And that was in the article at the time. It was in German, but because it was never kind of officially disclosed, despite kind of strong sources suggesting it was 1.1, it just managed like this, this kind of acquisition. It just went completely under the radar. In our report last year on tech exits in for tech eu we have it we've got it there so we knew of the company so i had obviously heard of them when i did the report but we had it down as undisclosed because officially it was undisclosed now gradually they've kind of come out and have actually confirmed the acquisition price so yeah i mean they're officially kind of europe's secret unicorn that's been there all along i mean it was 
practically in front of everyone and and they you know the information was there practically when i did hear about it i i went to robin uh, obviously editor of techie U, and he was on um, you know he was actually aware of it and he had been working with them for some time to put this story together uh so there were some people who were kind of aware of it but it just wasn't really made public until this week but yeah europe's secret unicorn is out in the open it's team viewer Yeah, and I just find it weird that you would undisclose such a big amount. But I mean, I think that's something we don't see happening that often. It's more undisclosed amounts or when the amounts are actually very low. So I think that's kind of interesting. And I find it funny that it would surface so late in the game that they'd come back two years later and be like, actually, it turns out we're a unicorn. But hey, better late than never. So, (laughs) But now let's move on to yet another Uber competitor that our listeners should pay attention to. I feel like There are literally millions. So this is Spain's Cabify that has just raised $120 million to challenge Uber in Europe and Latin America. So Neil, seriously, how many Uber competitors do you know? Nearly as many as on-demand food delivery startups that I know. That's that's, that's (laughs) insane. I think it's just insane. In France, we have a lot. Even though there's always news of crazy taxis and things like that, we have Chauffeur Privé, we have Le Cab, we have Heach. There's lots of Uber-like services that are actually going very strong. So uh, apparently a lot of the funding for Cabify is coming from Japanese e-commerce giant Rakuten, roughly 92 million of the 120. So that's approximately 76% of this deal. I think listeners should also know that Rakuten is a major investor in Lyft. This funding values the company at 320 million. Yeah, I found this quite odd, actually. I, I just wanted to step in and say with the valuation of 320 million, they've actually, with this round as well, they've actually raised around 150 million in total, which is about two times kind of the total funding is the valuation, which if you look at companies like, say, Uber, the kind of the multiplier is a lot bigger. So that obviously, they're valued kind of whatever it is these days, 70 billion or whatever, but they've raised about 9 billion in total. So the multiplier is much bigger. So I thought, okay, maybe that's just Uber. But I actually looked at some of the competitors in this space as well and it's the same thing right the multiplier is quite high so you could argue that this valuation is quite low especially considering you know the space they're in the competitors have a higher valuation in regards to the funding so yeah i was kind of intrigued as to why kind of 150 million has been pumped into the business but it's still only being valued at 320 million maybe that is a sign of the times of kind of a bit you know people are being a bit more wary but they've still pumped the money in and, and kind of given it a fairly low valuation when you look at how much money has gone in. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you on that. Cabify currently operates in Spain, Mexico, Chile, Colombia, and Peru. Plans to expand to other major Latin American cities like Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, Buenos Aires, as well as some major cities in Europe. So I think we can expect to see it kind of conquering the European continent pretty soon. Cabify had raised previous seed funding from Rakuten as well as the Winkelboss, I'm going to say this wrong, the Winkelboss Brothers Fund. Everybody knows who they are, even if I say it wrong. So that's called the Winkelboss Capital. Yeah, I finally got it. Um, And I find it hilarious. I'm not sure why. I guess I, I... didn't expect to see them in this company. It just is so, it sounds so random to me. Yeah, for me, like, I, I understand where you're coming from. The weird thing is, like, I think because of the social network, right? Because, like, Mark Zuckerberg, obviously a real person, you know, doing Facebook. But for me, I think I still struggle to see the Winklevires like real people. You know, they, they almost <laughs> seem like the jokey, I don't know, like this this character in a movie. So while it's easy to kind of see, oh, yeah, Zuckerberg, whatever, like, that's a portrayal of him, I still, 
<laughs> because I didn't know the Winklevoss brothers before, like, the lawsuit or... Well, actually, I knew them before the movie, right, because of the lawsuit, but I didn't know too much about them. And they've almost just kind of been transplanted into, as characters into my brain, so I'm guessing that might be one of the reasons <laughs> why you find it funny. As for Cabify, just to point out what we published something on Techie U today about how big this round was and what it means for Spain, this is actually the first round that's ever been a hundred above hundred million dollars in Spain ever. I think it's even the first one that's past eighty million, if I'm correct. So yeah, I mean this is a huge round for Spain. And actually a quarter which looked really, really bad for Spain, very, very low compared to other areas of Europe. While in the past it's always competed quite strongly, now all of a sudden Q two is looking great. It's got a over a hundred million rounds and all of a sudden, oh Spain doesn't look so bad this year. You know, I think a point should be made around, you know, I'm guilty of it as anyone else is is you know, we make so much of quarters and stuff like that. But, you know, one couple of weeks later, huge round comes like this and the pitch looks completely different. So it is important to look at health of funding and stuff like that over a much longer time period and, you know, just always kind of take account of that. Yeah, I think it will be interesting to see how Spain does now with this funding in our next uh, funding report for Q2. So, so far, the last year or so, we have seen tons of new funds sprouting up all over Europe. Uh, We've mentioned them before on the podcast, funds that have been started by well-known European VCs from Index, Excel, Advent, and the likes. So now we have yet another new fund, although this one takes a community-based approach to seed investment, or so they say. So the fund is called Back to VC, and it's founded by Andre de Hayes. I think I'm probably pronouncing that slightly wrong, who was formerly at both Index and Andreessen. So pretty solid background. His co-founder was formerly at McKinsey. The two of them have teamed up to launch a 30 million pan-European seed fund, and they've apparently already invested in some companies alongside Index and Connect Ventures. Some of their current investments include UK-based Boiler Room, French Accelerator The Family, and Finnish mobile gaming company Armada Interactive. So they will apparently be looking heavily into areas where they believe Europe is beating Silicon Valley. That's fashion, gaming, and fintech. And while they have positioned themselves as a community-based fund, I'm really not sure where the community aspect to their funding is coming from. So I, I just took a look at their website. What I gather from it is that they're looking to kind of support a wider community, which could also potentially explain their investment in the family. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was an odd wording, actually. I looked into it a little bit, and I think what they're getting at is that essentially they will give carry to anyone who finds them a deal as well. So they're going to kind of reward people for scouting deals or finding deals. I think they mainly said they will do that through their kind of founder network of founders that they already back and recommendations. So I think that's the community aspect is kind of giving back to those that, that I know for a fact, you know, VC firms rely on their network and people to kind of point them in directions of of different companies. Uh, So I think the plan for backed VC is to actually reward those people who are helping them in that way. And I think that's what they mean by community. As an aside, another thing that I found interesting about them is uh, I believe both of them are 28 years old, which is pretty amazing that two 28-year-olds, no matter their background, even though, as you say, they're pretty impressive backgrounds, actually, they can raise a 30 million fund two 28-year-olds. I mean, I I think that speaks volumes for what's going on in Europe right now when it comes to new funds. Yeah, that's definitely a first for Europe, I think. So definitely fun to pay attention to. And I'm glad that you brought that community aspect to our attention. I think we'll probably have to look at, at whether or not that pans out for them. 
Now let's have a listen to Neil, who had a chance to catch up with the founder of Unbabble on his business and some exciting things happening in Lisbon. Hi, Vasco. How's it going? Hi, Neil. It's going good. How about you? Yeah, not too bad. So yeah, obviously, uh, you are from Unbabble. Just wanted to give you opportunity quickly just to give us a little 30 seconds for our listeners to exactly kind of explain what Unbabble is and where you're based. Okay, well, we're the world's translation layer. So if you think about in terms of the internet, when it comes to languages, the internet is diverging. So you and I kind of live on this English internet, but there's a Chinese internet and Arabic internet and Russian and so on. And this is actually becoming bigger and bigger problem for companies in the world to be able to go global. So what Unbabble does is we use artificial intelligence and human translation to enable companies to communicate seamlessly. Right now, our, our current product product is actually... Uh, something that enables um, customer service agents to become multilingual in five minutes. So you add a plugin uh, on Zendesk and suddenly you can interact with people in any language. That's what we do. Okay, cool. So who are your competitors in this space? Like, you know, it does Google Translate. Does that even count as a competitor? I guess in certain ways, yes, right? So you have a range of companies that, that uh, when they're doing multilingual customer support and customer service, that use all the way from you know Google Translate to respond to people, all the way to having native agents in the locations where they're uh, giving customer service. So in that sense, from the standpoint of a solution, uh, certainly there's you know that that would be one of the competitors. But more often than not, we're we're coming against um, you know companies like Gingo, let's say a One Hour Translation, uh, Textmaster, those kinds of companies that are also in the translation space. Okay. And in terms of your solution, how, how is it is it made up? I know you incorporate machine learning, like you said, uh, when you were giving us the intro, but do you have a mixture of kind of, say, uh, a more technical approach and still having that kind of human approach as well? Or, or kind of, I, I guess I'm, I'm asking, what's the balance between the two? Yeah, so um, the way it works is if you think about it, the most costly and time-consuming part of the translation is the human component. And so the way we're thinking about it is how can we use uh, artificial intelligence to make human translators incredibly efficient on one hand and the other to reduce the amount of human effort required to translate you know, customer service interactions. And so what this means is we use our own machine translation engine as a first pass uh, and then the output of that goes into humans that correct it to make it you know, perfect. And then they, that's what goes out to, to customers. And then the benefit is that the output of the humans gets reintroduced in the machine translation engine so that you get better and better over time. And our AI, what we mean artificial intelligence here, is not just the machine translation engine, but it's also, for example, the task routing algorithm. You know, we have 40,000 translators in the platform. They have very different uh, backgrounds and, and skills. And understanding who gets to translate what is a very interesting problem. Uh, and then finally, it's also on the actual editing process. So when you have an interface for translation, how do you use artificial intelligence to, uh, in a way, create a, an assistant that helps the translator while they're doing their job so that they're much more efficient? Cool. Sounds uh, like an interesting and uh, kind of very complex approach. But at the same time, you made it sound quite simple. So, uh, yeah, no, it's it's a very cool solution. Uh, and what about your, your journey? Uh, so you were uh, in Y Combinator? Um, yeah, winter 2014. Okay. Uh, so we're five co-founders. Uh, we're all Portuguese. And uh, we got into YC on the winter 2014 batch. I mean, it was a great experience. Uh, we it, it actually accelerated. I mean, it did it did what it's supposed to do. It accelerated in Babel quite a lot. 
it was three very intense months of uh, just focusing on, on a battle 24 seven locked in one small apartment in Mountain View, but, uh, but really nailing down and kind of driving towards a product market fit and understanding your customers has been invaluable for a long time. So about a year after that, we were focused on more of the general translation problem. Then nine months ago, we launched the first subscription plan for uh, human quality translation. For nine months, we experimented in multiple markets. We were targeting e-commerce, travel, and customer service. And now we're kind of going narrow on the customer service market because we're seeing this amazing traction product market fit. Okay. And uh, in terms of funding, employees, what, what kind of uh, stage? We're 28 people right now. And uh, we had we raised so far uh, a little over three million dollars. Okay, and that's uh, is that something that you'll be looking at again this year? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, we're we're now starting to um, to think about you know raising another round of funding to fuel kind of further growth, taking everything we learned and kind of you know speeding up. Okay, so you're. I, I mean, I think it's fair to say, and no exaggeration to say, that you're one of the most uh, promising Portuguese startups at the moment. Um, Thank obviously, you. there's a lot of hype about Lisbon. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, is, is there kind of more than you? I mean, just to give you a background, to be completely honest with you, I mean, I've seen a lot of kind of talk about Lisbon, a lot of uh, hype, a lot of uh, you know organizations are certainly hedging their bets on Lisbon. But when I look at the funding, the exits things like that, it's still very quiet. Of course, it's still very early days. But what's it like on the ground? Are there a lot of promising Portuguese startups right now? Or is it just hype? I mean, there's definitely something happening. You know, it's kind of hard. I can give you a set of arguments that I think are making Lisbon a very interesting case. Above all of that, there's there's something happening, some energy that is pooling in Lisbon that is kind of hard to quantify, but that certainly is having a strong impact. I think it's a combination of things. On one end, uh, you know, we went through an austerity period, and so that always spurs uh, more entrepreneurial leanings. I mean, people, you know, well, if I'm not going to have a job anyway, might as well start something for myself. That was an unfortunate side effect. Uh, well, it was a good side effect of an unfortunate situation. On the other hand, Portugal invested a lot in uh, very uh, advanced degrees for a lot of people in Portugal that went to, like, you know, universities like Carnegie Mellon, MIT, and so on. And a lot of those people came back. So there's a little bit of a sea turtle effect, right? They come back to nest. And, uh, and they're here and they've been exposed to a different entrepreneurial culture. So they're bringing some of that along. Then you have the kind of the geographical situation. You know, Lisbon is on one end, you know, a safe democratic city, very good infrastructure. You know, it's a very high level of engineering and it's still very affordable to live. You have great weather. People in general speak English. Uh, you know, it's in the same time zone as London. It's close to the U.S. as any other, you know, as close to the U.S. as any other European city. It's it's a good mix of things. You know, you yeah. have good technical universities. And then what we're seeing is the first batch of successful Portuguese startups, you know, things like companies like um, Feedzai and Venium and Talkdesk and Uniplaces and, and Babel and so many Cedars. The majority of those uh, actually very early on, as soon as they started, they then established like a beachhead in either San Francisco or London. And then they had, you know, part of their management move there. Uh, it's a little bit the Israeli model. And I think that's been successful. Um, and what we're waiting to see now is kind of the second generation of startups that can doesn't need to do that. I think that's going to be a, something that I'm going to be looking towards as a signal that 
the ecosystem is maturing to a level that uh, that is very solid. I think that's going to take a few years to happen. Right now, we're still seeing this very promising startups in a cycle, like in Babel, where you know that it's very promising. A number of them raised very large rounds last year, or by Portuguese standards, you know, in the twenty million range, uh, which th- definitely is is very promising. I think we're going to still need to see another three four years before we start seeing real exits. So if this was a story, you know, the the hero story. Right now we're in the trenches, and we need we need like a couple of victories. But uh, but we're seeing some good signs. On one end, we're seeing a lot of people moving to Lisbon, not just from Eastern European countries, but now even from you know like you know London and Paris and so on because cost of living and a combination of things, uh, which is a good sign. We're seeing companies moving here. You know, Spotify just announced their next office is here. Uh, I'm hearing talk about a number of other European startups that are opening offices here. So that's all very positive. I, I think the challenge still is investment. So uh, you can you can have seed investment in Portugal right now that's really good. Uh, but to get to bigger rounds, Series A and above, typically you need to go international for that. That's still a handicap that I think only will be overcome by having people that went through successful startups, made their money, and then want to reinvest uh, here, and in having sort of a critical mass. So it's, it's kind of hard to say. Certainly is a great place to live. Certainly there's a lot of energy in startups. There's a lot of talent and uh, willingness and scrappiness and so on. And uh, Portuguese in general are fairly international. You know, like we're, we speak English, we get along really well, we're good salesmen, you know, so we adapt really well to different environments. It's been very much part of our history. And so you're seeing that when, when you know, like that, that's becoming apparent. But we'll see. Time will tell. I mean, obviously, you have Web Summit moving to Lisbon, et cetera, all of that hype. I think there's a couple of things also that are interesting. So if you look in San Francisco and specifically Silicon Valley, um, San Francisco was never really a major city in the U.S. So there was no competition. I have this thesis, which is like, you know, New York has a lot of startups, but it will never be a startup city because there's so much competition from other industries. And London is a little bit like that. Right? I mean, there's a, a, amazing startups in London, but there's amazing a lot of other things in London, you know, the financial sector and a bunch of other things. So it will be very hard for London to be a startup city. In Lisbon, there's no competition from other industries. So the whole city is behind this feeling of like startups is the way to go. Uh, and so that also uh, creates a good critical mass of infrastructures that are designed to help startups, uh, which is also, I think, positive. Yeah, I think you raised some excellent points. And actually, many of them are kind of aligned with my thoughts. But it's kind of good to actually get some insight on someone who is been there part of the scene. Yeah, I think that this, what you said is a very promising you're saying it has a lot of promise, has a lot of potential. The conditions are kind of there now, right, for something yeah. to, to take place. But, you know, hold your horses a little bit. They're still, like you say, it's the beginning of the story, right? So, yeah, yeah. I think you, you made some excellent points. So good to get insight on that. Yeah, I just want to give you the final word on Unbabble, though. What's next for you guys? So um, a lot of the stuff that we're working on right now is coming into play. I mean, the first two years were really about building the foundation of our AI engine. And so a lot of that's starting to come into play now. Uh, we expect to be uh, doubling down on that in the next couple of years and, and really seeing very exciting things that are going to come out soon. First, I can't you know, talk about them yet, but they're going to be very exciting on how the whole communication and translation process happens. And then in terms of products themselves, we, we expect to continue to invest for this next year mostly on customer service because we're seeing this great fit and traction uh, and then tackle uh, other verticals uh, afterwards. I mean, it's a big world, you know, translation. There's very few things you do on a daily basis. One of them is speaking and talking and using language. And we really see that 
for example, even the UK, uh, there, right now it's estimated that 3.5% of the GDP is lost because on, on exports because there's this tendency to assume that everybody else speaks English. But 75% of the world doesn't speak English, not even as a second language. So this is this gigantic bottleneck that is, is one of the things that's preventing the global village to really emerge. And, you know, we want to keep going at it because it's really exciting to solve. Excellent. Really great to hear from you. Great to hear about Unbabble. Great to hear about Lisbon as well. So thank you for your time, Vasco. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure. Finally, this is the moment I have been waiting for this entire podcast. The what the fuck moment. I think we should make this a regular moment on the show, actually. I, just, <laughs> I think it's I the first time we've that. ever sworn. I think it's the first time we've ever sworn on a podcast. I can't believe it's you and not me. I know. I'm really, I'm, I'm frustrated by this topic because apparently Dow Jones has underreported Europe's Q1 funding and by a lot, which just strikes me as so odd. So tech.eu, as our listeners will know, have published a report, which we feature on the podcast, mentioning that Europe and Israel have raised 4.8 billion euros in Q1 of this year. So that's just, you know, that's just where we're on a huge climb up. Deal Room also reported the same figures. Investor Gil Dibner apparently got 3.3 billion euros using a different methodology, but we're still on, you know, very, very strong climb. However, Dow Jones lovely Dow Jones reported only 2.6 billion, which is actually half of what tech.eu tracked and categorized Q1 funding as a decline while we reported 66% year-on-year growth. So some publications have even used Dow Jones data to publish dramatic headlines saying that Europe's funding is falling and it just, it makes me go mad. So Neil, what do you think is going on here? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I've been saying this for a while now. Like, I actually think, I mean, it, it, this sounds very dramatic, but I really think that there needs to be some sort of, not regulatory body, but some sort of, I don't know, like, I, I just think it's harmful to publish incorrect data. It's harmful to report on incorrect data. So I feel like something needs to be, you know, like libel. Like, you know, if you say something that's not true about someone publicly or on the internet, whatever, you're going to get in shit. I believe that this should also apply to data. I mean, because it, it's just getting ridiculous now. I mean, I understand that methodologies are different and it's very, very hard to, to get data correct, right? And we all make mistakes. I've made mistakes at the Nordic web before, you know, I've put something in the wrong course. It's just, you know, it's a human mistake and these things happen. But when this is so wildly inaccurate and then we get pieces writing about it and kind of yeah i mean saying slow down in europe when that's not happening at all i think that gives the wrong impression to people so i i definitely think there needs to be kind of tighter control over it i mean just to give another example just for the nordics we tracked about 100 off the top of my head it was around 150 investments another publication wrote an article saying oh wow investment has completely stopped in the nordics they only had 11 investments in q1 and we've tracked 150 plus. And then it's just like, you know, that that should not be allowed. Like, I really believe that should not be allowed. Of course, Dow Jones is a reputable source. You know, they've got a, a history behind them. I'm sure whatever they did, you know, it wasn't kind of deliberately inaccurate. But at the same time, I think if you are going to report on Europe, then you need to make a, a kind of bigger effort to get that right. I mean, to me, I just think... There used to be bad sources for Europe. Techie U is there now. There's other sources there that can give a more accurate picture of Europe. So, I, yeah, it frustrates me as well. But I actually think something needs to be done about it. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, reporting in inaccurate figures is wrong. I don't actually, I don't believe it was actually done intentionally, obviously. Um, looking at some of the comments that we got on different social networks, I mean, potentially they didn't include Israel and maybe Turkey, which we included in our data. But I still don't feel like that gets us, you know, to half of the funding and I, I don't know. So I, I think also we should be a little bit more transparent with really where are these numbers coming from? How are they being tracked? Yeah. And just go based on that. But yeah, reporting a like essentially half of what was raised and calling it a decline for Europe. I just feel like, you know, come on, guys, what are you what are you doing? So hopefully Dow Jones will um, not do that again, or at least uh, we'll check their data more accurately in the future. Yeah, I think you raised a good point there, actually, maybe just dis- disclaiming everything in terms of how you collected the data. You know, perhaps that is an answer because, you know, it's a more realistic answer than uh, actually, you know, a law or whatever being being passed or like something happening in terms of kind of a lot stricter. But you, you raise a good point. Perhaps, you know, people who are going to kind of publish reports or publish data should actually list exactly how they tracked it and just be a lot more transparent about it. I mean, what's really interesting as well is that I had a look at Dow Jones data. There's loads and loads and loads and loads of biotech investments. And that actually makes up a hell of a lot of the total. And we don't actually include biotech. We, you know, TechEU says that's a different part. So do most of the major kind of data analysts who dabble in this as well. I think they didn't include Spotify as well. Um, so then when you look at that, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just massive inconsistencies. And yeah, exactly. Methodologies are different, but it's slightly worrying that even at, you know, half of what we reported, and then a lot of it was biotech, then clearly a lot of deals are being missed. And I think that TechEU does a good job of catching those early deals or, that you know, like those seed deals, you know, that are happening in kind of Portugal or, you know, more obscure places and not just in the major hubs. I mean, as, as good as Dow Jones is, I just simply believe that they don't have the oversight to cat Europe is a big market and that is why TechEU exists to kind of you know cover that fragmentation and to kind of try and do a best job of, of figuring out what's going on in it and you know even TechEU's been doing it for a couple of years it's still hard to figure out what's going on in Europe because it's so big it's so diverse uh, and it's really hard to gather it all so you know I, I just believe and it's not against Dow Jones or anyone I just don't believe that if you're not on the ground or if you're not dealing with it day to day, then you actually can't be tracking a lot of these early investments. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Right. So we'll be back next week, probably less ranty and sweary. Follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Acast. Please give us your feedback on this episode. You can reach out to us on Twitter at Neil SW Murray, at Roxanne Vaza, at tech underscore EU. Obviously, the website is tech.eu. But that's all for this week. Thanks, Roxanne. Thanks, Neil.